Harris Studios. This is Accounting for Tomorrow, an accounting and advisory services podcast for community leaders with a passion for change. We are ready to look past the numbers and ensure that today's planning efforts create success for tomorrow. thanks for joining us today on our podcast. I'm excited to have Cheryl and David here, partners with me at Harris CPAs. And today's topic, we're really focused on tax and tax planning for the end of the year, but really concentrated on businesses. We have another podcast focused on individual tax planning. And if you want information on that, I invite you to go over and listen to that podcast. But this podcast is going to be really focused on businesses and what we can do at the end of this year, looking at our tax planning for 2023. So get us started. Cheryl, talk to us overall how 2023 went. There were some pretty significant tax things that came through the IRS this past year and just kind of give us an update of how things went. Sure, I'd be happy to. So a couple of items that came up last year was the employee retention credits. A lot of companies applied for that credit. It was a payroll tax deduction. You got your refund based off of your payroll taxes that you paid if you had employees. And you could qualify for that by either having a reduced income over certain limits or by having a government order shut down. And so the thing about that is that you have to go back to the period in which the employees were paid and go back and amend your tax return for that year. It wasn't something that you could just take in your current year and just take that income in. So not like PPP loans that we got a couple of years ago that were tax-free. These actually, you had to pick up the income on the credit you got. So you had to reduce your payroll by the amount right. of the payroll that was used to get those credits. And so... A lot of amended returns now are going to be filed for businesses and then their individuals if they were flow-through entities. So that was a big change. So it seemed like there was a lot of news in that in August. And the IRS, there's a lot of, we won't say fraud, maybe fraud, we could say fraud, or maybe abuse of of the potential of the credit. So where does the IRS stand now on, on ERC? So I had a conversation with the IRS not that long ago, and they had stopped issuing refunds in that program for new applications until they could figure out exactly who was filing these fraudulent or abusive returns. And so it slowed down any refunds. I haven't seen any additional ones come out lately or be refunded lately, but we're hopeful that they can finish that process and get those refunds issued. Right. I think they put a little bit of moratorium on going through those through the end of the year. And I think they also provided, if you got one of the million phone calls that we probably all got regarded qualifying, they did set up something that if you don't think you actually qualified, but you did file, there's a way for you to kind of go in and self-report, pay the money back and recoup it. But the big impact this year was on the ERCs and the amended returns. I think some businesses are forgetting they also have to file not only the business amended returns, but if it's a flow through, all the individual amended returns as well. Exactly. So the IRS handling all those amended returns may be a challenge as well, but probably most people owe with those returns since it was more reduction in the amount of deduction you got. So you won't be waiting on them to issue a refund. The other thing that we were hoping maybe would be fixed was the research and experimental expense treatment. And so it's 
Code Section 174D. We were hoping that this would get overturned, but it didn't. And so any business who has research and experimental expenses needed to capitalize those costs in 2022 tax returns and amortize them over five years. And so that greatly increased income for a lot of businesses who do research and experimental type work. Right. So the nature of that is that it's a revenue generator for the government and came into play. You capitalize expenses. If I were a business owner, I would have written off. Or in 2021. Or 21. So in 21, I would have written off. But now starting in 22, I have to capitalize them almost like a piece of equipment and then amortize them over a five-year process. So theoretically, after five years, I'll be back to expensing them but it'll just be the next five years capitalizing these expenses will be an increase to our income for our businesses and an increase in tax. Yeah, I think it was even a little worse than that, Josh, because I don't know how familiar everyone is with like the inventory rule under 263 small a, and then going to overhead allocations that had to occur on 263 big A, which takes out of expense and puts into a capital nature that you can't deduct right away. It's much the same thing as the way I took it is all of a sudden we had all this overhead that was associated with direct expenses that we only looked at before most of the time. Now we had to pull that in and that could be substantial for business and why income increased so much and caught a lot of people off guard. So they were more than willing to extend and wait, but our legislatures deemed it not to be that important. And so we had to proceed with filing that way. I mean, those are a couple of things that are still around. We kind of dealt with them last year, but they're going to be present as we go through this year too. But we also have a couple other business items like the beneficial ownership and FinCEN coming up with rules. Cheryl, maybe give a little overview because that's coming now in 2024. So the Corporate Transparency Act created a new reporting requirement. So companies that were created or registered to do business prior to 2024 will have to file a form of some sort that documents who owns their businesses with FinCEN. So the Treasury Department is controlling this reporting requirement. And that all will have to happen prior to January of 2025. And so the rules for that are still coming out. And we as a firm are working on trying to figure out exactly what everyone needs to do. And we'll have guidance for that as it comes out. It's been a lot of talk and a lot of conferences that all of our people have gone to. uh, Lawyers saying they're not going to do it. CPAs saying maybe or maybe not. FinCEN still trying to come out with how you're going to report. But the penalties are pretty significant if you don't. I think it's important to know if you set up a new entity after January 1st, you need to have a plan or reach out to have a plan to get them registered in this new portal that's being made, supposedly. But if you have previous entities set up, we're going to continue to work as a firm to try and provide information and get information to those clients on how to comply with it. We are sure that we have all of next year to do it. And maybe if some of the organizations like the AICPA get their way, maybe they can extend it out and give us even more time to do it. But It's definitely something that we are going to be on top of as it comes in April, May, kind of the summer timeframe to help people comply with this new rule. So as I swing on to the last new thing, it was passed maybe was a year or two ago, was the Inflation Reductionary Act. 
And there were a lot of tax credits and stuff buried in that act. We were waiting for the IRS to kind of tell us how they're going to work. Maybe, David, you can kind of walk us through because some of them are coming on board this year. I think, Josh, a lot of them are coming online. It's a pretty extensive list. I went back and reviewed it last night, and I was looking at all the different credits that are available. And as I kind of walked down through them, there's a lot of them. And each business is really going to need to probably get with their tax advisor and professional and kind of see if they're applicable or not. But they're all mainly energy efficiency, clean, new electric vehicles, solar, biomass, those types of things, all energy related. And there must be at least a dozen, if not more, that could apply. But in the client base that I deal with that may be relevant to take a look at is the new energy efficient home credit. That was used to be the $1,000, $2,000 credit is now up to $2,500. So if people are, are building homes and they've got a set plan that this might not be cost prohibitive to achieve, that $2,500 per unit may be fairly significant. And it can actually be modified or expanded if they meet other certain rules which I think are going to take time to sort through uh, and make sure that they're applicable. But it, it could go as high with a certified zero energy home as high as $5,000 per unit credit, which are pretty intriguing if you're building 100 homes a year, for example. Another one that's been out there a while, just been modified and extended, that I think is applicable in my client base that I've been planning with is the energy efficient commercial building deduction. It may allow those energy improvements to be done over a certain dollar amount by their square footage and whatnot. Some of the other ones that are being used right now are more on the individual side, like we just talked about the electric vehicle credit. We didn't discuss the excess business loss, non-corporate taxpayer 461L, I think it is provision, which is related to net operating loss limitations. It's only allowing excess losses, but most of the other credits seem applicable to more manufacturing, steel, pharmacy type efficiencies. So as near as I can tell that there's a big law there with a lot of stuff that is very specific in nature. Got it. We've got some overall business issues with maybe ERC and the Corporate Transparency Act. We've got kind of getting used to some of the new research and development expenses, credits for energy for the Inflation Reductionary Act and different items. But outside of those items, things have been pretty quiet when passing new tax legislation. But I know we've got some stuff that's kind of changing and sunsetting out, I guess, over time and from tax laws that were passed four or five years ago. So as we move into this next part, talking about different things to look at from a tax planning. We just want to go through some stuff that's already been in place, but just to review to make sure we still have it and we're still thinking about it, but then also if we need to adjust. One of the big things that came out a few years ago was the ABE payment and paying your state taxes basically through your entity. And maybe Cheryl, you can kind of give us a little overview and if there is anything that has changed in the last year. So the idea around making an affected business entity payment, that's what ABE stands for, is to circumvent that the limitation on your individual tax return of taking a deduction of only $10,000 in state taxes. And so 
it put businesses at a disadvantage. So they came out with a method that you could pay those state taxes through your business entity and then take a deduction in your business for those state taxes. In Idaho, you have to make those payments before December 31st to be able to take them on your 2023 tax return. If you do that, then your business will get the deduction for the state taxes and then your federal income is lowered because of that state tax deduction. You still have to add that back for Idaho because Idaho doesn't allow that state taxes as a deduction. But it's a nice way to get more than just $10,000 worth of state income tax deduction on your federal tax return. So does ABE apply to every state? Or is it specific states? You have to be careful because each state's kind of designed its own package or platform, so to speak. My example would be like California. They use more of a credit versus a withholding or estimate type regime. Like Idaho is very simple. I think Idaho is a good example of how it should have been done throughout the nation. But you have to be careful because in California, if you're a non-resident, for example, and you elect to prepay that state tax. If you're no longer going to be in California and you overpay, it becomes a credit and a carry-forward credit for five years. If you never use it up, you lose it. So I think Montana just came on board with a new platform that people should maybe take a look at it before they jump on. And any state that allows for it, not every state does, but most states do now. Right. So first you have to look at the particular state look at the income you're going to have allocated to each individual state to see if it's worth it, and then to look at how the mechanics of how you have to do it in each state, because they could be different. The devil is in the details. Another one that I have a hard time always tracking is net operating losses and what's allowed, what you can carry forward, what can you carry back. It just seemed like the rules have been changing a lot lately. (laughs) Well, they have. And one that particularly sticks out for me, it came through the TCJE 2017 Tax Act, expanded by the CARES Act. ARPA hit on it, and it still exists today through the Inflation Reduction Act. And that's back to the one I briefly mentioned, extending the the NOL provision. And basically, it's an excess business loss provision. And the best example I can give, the one in some of my training courses, just really goes to think about a married couple I have a million dollars in wages, but I have a spouse that has a Schedule C business with a million dollar loss. Can those two net against each other and I don't have any taxable income? The answer under this provision is no. That would be limited being used at $578,000 of that million dollar loss is all I can use to apply in the current year. The $422,000 excess loss I get a carryover as a net operating loss provision. So with the net operating loss provisions, in future years, I can only offset 80% of my income. I can't offset 100%. So in effect, you do have NOL carryovers well into the future. As long as you can use them, they did away with the 20-year carry forwards. But it'll be surprising when those circumstances arise, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's important people have income in one area and then they think, oh, I can create a loss in my business and I'm just going to offset the two when it's not always going to be the case. And so you really got to be careful. Absolutely. Yes. What about, you know, depreciation limits? I think that's something else, Cheryl, that might be changing or the limits are are moving around because I know a lot of our businesses like to buy a lot of 
fixed assets and equipment and different things at year end. The Section 179 accelerated depreciation provisions are still in effect. They are going to be $1,160,000 of new assets that you can write off for 2023 as long as you haven't spent more than $4,050,000 worth of new purchases. So a good way to be able to reduce your business income if you needed the equipment anyway. The bonus depreciation, so prior to 2023, it had been at 100%. So if you maxed out your section 179 and you then used your bonus depreciation or you had an entity that wasn't eligible to take section 179 you could use bonus depreciation that is now limited in 2023 to 80% so you can only expense up to 80% of that asset under bonus depreciation so we have the 100% going down to 80% for federal depreciation can you remind people what qualifies to be able to be expensed and are there limits So typically, if you buy a vehicle over 6,000 pounds, you can get some additional favorable depreciation. If you buy a car, a luxury car, then the IRS limits your depreciation on those types of vehicles. It limits your depreciation on SUVs. And then you also have to remember that you have to use the vehicle for business purposes. And so your vehicles are also limited to your personal use percentage. So you need to make sure that you're tracking your miles to be able to document what your business versus personal use was. So our clients that bought Teslas aren't going to be able to write 100% of them off. (laughs) No. No, No. there's limits. Okay. I just want (laughs) you see a lot of them driving around. So, and then one last thing, just, I know, David, we were talking before this about real estate interest expense and the limitation on that. Is that changing this year or where does that stand for this year? No, it's still in play. I think referring to the 163J provisions where... If you're not able to elect out of the provision, business interest expense may be limited. There's some computational rules that you arrive at the number that gets limited, but there are certain real estate enterprises, trades or businesses that can elect out of it. But one of the key factors there is they may be limited on their bonus depreciation on what they can do in that realm. So there's pros and cons. You get the interest expense, but then you might have shot yourself in the foot by not being able to take full bonus depreciation on items. Excellent. So we've got some consistency and maybe a little tweaks here as we go through on some of these different deductions and ability to buy equipment. One thing that always comes in at this time of year is clients coming in and asking about entity selection, partnerships, LLCs, S-Corp, C-Corp. Dave, maybe you can walk us through the thought process about choosing the right entity and how that impacts your taxes? I would start off with that is it's ask a lot and it's a hard question to address because as you go from simple to complex, from a Schedule C, DBA, move up to an LLC, maybe a partnership, S corporation, C corporation, you start to compound your administrative costs. You start to require another tax return. You start to require payroll tax filings. So a lot of it is not necessarily driven by the tax side of it because you can operate any business at any form of entity, right, for the most part. And so it really gets down to working with the attorney. Is there some kind of operating risk or is there some other provision? For example, with the C corporation, there might be IRC 1202 stock where if I'm an original investor and I'm in the right industry 
and I hold it for five years and then I sell the stock, I get it 100% or up to $10 million excluded from capital gains. So there's a lot of different factors from legal, tax, cost that all have to be evaluated, type of industry, service, manufacturing, and whether you segregate assets. So you could be a construction company. That's one that's coming up recently is, hey, do I keep my equipment in a different entity than I do my operating entity? And that may be a liability risk reason to form another entity or to use an S corporation or C corporation. And there are all these legal requirements that we get tied into that we really need to work with good legal advice or an attorney, business attorney, in order to make those decisions as well. I completely agree. You have legal liability. Also, there's some tax things too, right? Like the use of ABE if you're set up as an entity or possibly some payroll taxes. There's just a bunch of different items that kind of go into play when trying to pick out that right entity for your business. I know some people have gone through the pass-through entity versus the C-Corp analysis. It's always interesting to see where those kind of land. seems like they've always been pretty close. I mean, sometimes they go one way or the other, but a lot of times, at least where our tax rates are and the way it's structured, it goes back to, again, legal business plans, what their future ideas are, impact a lot of those analysis when it comes to entity selection. I think part of it, though, is just important that you talk about it with your tax preparer and planning, because it's not something that you get a switch every you know 30 days. It's kind of a longer term election. You have to do a little bit longer term thinking when you're trying to pick out what entity you are. Absolutely agree with that. I mean, some intriguing things, people see the 21% flat rate of a C corporation, but what they neglect to remember is there's double taxation involved at the end of the day. Right. So- Yeah, everything needs to kind of be put in. It's an individual preference at times, but I agree with you. You really need to look at a whole lot of different angles. So when we're doing these tax planning, we have a lot of businesses and owners come in, and I think it's important for them to understand what kind of basis of accounting their business is on for tax purposes. A lot of business owners do a phenomenal job running their business throughout the year, and they think maybe they're on a cash basis because that's the way they operate. But from a tax perspective, they might not be. They might be on accrual or some other basis of accounting. Cheryl, maybe you can kind of start us off and just talk about the different bases of accounting and why it's important to know it from a tax perspective. Sure. So a couple of the different types of basis of accounting. First off, the cash basis of accounting, that is Basically, you recognize income when you receive it, and you get to deduct the expenses when you pay them. And so you can kind of do a little bit of tax planning over accelerating expenses at the end of the year and making payments in advance to reduce your income or getting income in the door if you're trying to increase your income for the year. Really quick. That doesn't mean I can just stop collecting my mail for 30 days, right? Okay. (laughs) Because I've gotten that question before from some people. Like, there is some limit. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. But so then the opposite of that would be the accrual method, which is whenever you recognize the revenue and expenses when you incur them. So when you incur the expense, it doesn't really matter when you paid it or when you collected it. It's when you incurred the revenue or the expenses. And so you can do planning with that as well. And so either method you can plan, you just have to know what method you're on and make the necessary adjustments if you're targeting a certain income bracket or level. 
I think a key point along with that cash basis of accounting that I think will sneak up on some of our more successful companies is the $29 million previous three-year average rule. I have a few clients that are having to convert to accrual method and some other forms of inventory methods in order to transition out of having that cash basis of accounting. So that's something to keep in mind. There, There is a rule out there that is fairly high, $29 million average over the prior three years. That's pretty significant. That number is inflated, so it doesn't stay constant. And so that's something I think people will really need to kind of be cautious of in the business. Absolutely, especially as you're doing planning. That first year when you switch over could go either way, but it's generally companies that are growing. So we'd call it an unfavorable tax event in the first year. So definitely something to plan on. I think the other thing that we've seen over the last several years for businesses to be aware of is state and local taxes and the nexus rules. We're by no means nexus experts, but it's dramatically changed from five years ago or even especially 10 years ago. Maybe talk about how businesses should watch for this and just be aware of what's going on in their business. I think it's a segment of business and tax that's becoming a big specialty just because it's so complicated. It's the Wayfair case really <laughs> shot a hole in things with sales tax, gone to number of transactions or thresholds that are pretty low on the internet, you know, $100,000 maybe or 50000 in sales. And so they've started the direction for income tax exposure to be relevant. So in my mind, we as public accounting firms probably need to take a look at where are we going to be required to report? Is it where we receive, where the client is located? It's always been kind of a standard practice that it's in the state where you produce the product. So I think it's opened the door. And if you think the exposure's there, you're starting to have a lot of activity in a certain state or multiple states, I think it's well worth getting a study done on what your exposure is. Right. I mean, you need to track where your customers are and where that revenue is being generated because every state's a little different and has their different rules and you have to go through it. That's what those studies really help you to do. And that's just at a state level. There's some local jurisdictions too that can catch you on taxes. Like, well, I don't have an employee in that state and I don't have an office in that state. But if I have 80% of my sales in that state, you still might or very well probably could have Nexus in that state and would need to at least evaluate it. Well, you even have it on flow through entities. If you think New York is just one that sticks out in my mind, you may be in Idaho, but have a New York resident as a partner shareholder. Guess what? You have to file in New York. Right. So the rules are complicated and you do need to be aware of them. Right. I just think it's important. It's not a sales tax issue anymore. I mean, Wayfair brought sales tax in and you saw Amazon and a bunch of the larger entities, the online retailers do it. But then through the pandemic, income tax now has followed suit. I agree. Yeah. And so it's part of our year-end planning that, that you really have to assess for a business. Yeah. A lot of states have gone to a sales only type method and they've gone away from that, like you were saying, the physical presence test and more of just a where's your customer located in the sales so you don't have to be in the state to actually have state tax liability. Right. 
So I'd like to thank Cheryl and David for coming on today at the podcast and talking about kind of the business tax planning. I said at the beginning, we have an individual tax planning process too. And a lot of times our planning is combined with both the individual and business owners and then also the business itself. But there are a lot of things going on this past year and into next year. So we invite everyone to contact their tax advisor. We'd love to help out and plan for them. It's a great time of year to look at how we did last year and plan for the future as well as things are coming out. So thanks again for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Harris CPA's Accounting for Tomorrow. Stay tuned for new episodes each month. Podcasts are also available on our website at harriscpas.com slash podcasts. Any accounting business or tax advice contained in this podcast is not intended as a thorough in-depth analysis of specific issues, nor a substitute for a formal opinion, nor is it sufficient to avoid tax-related penalties. If you'd like, Harris CPAs would be pleased to perform the research and provide you with a detailed analysis of your specific situation.